Good morning, everyone. And um, great to see you, and welcome to the guys online as well. <clears throat> Sorry if I'm losing my voice a little bit, but I'm just going to go for it. So why not wish the person next to you a happy Palm Sunday? Maybe even give them a high five Palm Sunday. <clears throat> because Palm Sunday is really all about excitement and celebration. <laughs> There's a lot of excitement in the room. Because it remembers when Jesus rode on that donkey into Jerusalem, sh surrounded by a crowd shouting, Hosanna, save us. They laid down their cloaks and their palm branches on the dusty road in hopeful anticipation that Jesus was the coming king, finally here to save them from their enemies. And if you're here, perhaps new to this, exploring faith with questions about God, maybe it's all sounding a little bit weird and cliched already. Jesus riding a miniature horse into Jerusalem with the crowds going wild. But I want to suggest that Palm Sunday gives us an amazing window into who Jesus is and really an opportunity for us to personally respond to him. So whatever place you're in right now, wherever you are in your faith journey, I'd just love us to take a moment to pause and just pray together to invite the Lord to encounter our own hearts. So why don't you just close your eyes, maybe put a hand on your heart or even a hand outstretched. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you come in love and grace. Lord, would you encounter me today? Some of you here perhaps just need just a sense of Jesus' presence in your life. Maybe you don't feel like you even know him yet, but you know you need something. And he's here today in this room to meet you. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Just a sense of God's presence in the room with us. And there'll be a time to pray at the end. Um, you can come forward and have someone pray with you. But to give some context, Palm Sunday marks the beginning of what we call Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' life. In a few days from now, on Good Friday, everything will have changed. Jesus will be unjustly condemned and crucified just outside the city he's entered to with such acclaim. Then on Easter Sunday, Jesus will rise from the grave, triumph over death, and launch the Christian faith, which will spread around the world for the next 2,000 years, even reaching deepest, darkest Lenten and us today. And these events in Holy Week, the gravity of what happened, their impact, it can't really be overstated. So we're going to read where it all first started on that Palm Sunday, it's recorded in a passage found in Matthew's Gospel in the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, it's Matthew chapter 21, and it will come up on the screen as well if you want to follow along. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The whole city was stirred. Who is this? Who really is Jesus? The four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, they love to bring this question to the forefront over and over again, especially through showing different people's reactions to what Jesus says and does. So when Jesus miraculously stills the storm with a word, his disciples say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Or when Jesus appears on trial in front of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, he demands to know, where do you come from? Are you the king of the Jews? Or when Jesus claims to be equal with God, the Jewish religious authorities angrily demand to know, aren't we right in saying you're demon-possessed? Who do you think you are? The crowds on that first Palm Sunday were stirred to ask, who is this? And what about us in this crowd today? Who is Jesus to you right now? I remember being a 15-year-old kid growing up in Essex. Anyone here from Essex? Yes, there's a few of us. Come on, it's the best, isn't it? We love Essex. I'd grown up going to church, and I knew a bit about Jesus. But in my teenage years, I'd really drifted and become distant from him. I pushed him away, actually, because it didn't seem like Jesus was going to help me get to the things I wanted. Being popular, being successful, being cool, whatever that was. But then my mate Pete moved to the area, and he shared his faith with me. Not in church, but at school, and while we were jamming in our jazz band. (laughs) The more Pete told me, the more I wanted to know. I wanted to really experience the relationship he had with Jesus. So I just kept asking him more and more questions. I don't know whether it was just he'd had enough of my nagging, but one day he said, mate, if you're so interested in Jesus, why don't you just talk to him yourself? Ask him to come into your life. And I remember saying a prayer out loud with Pete in the school hall of all places, and my life completely changed. I encountered who Jesus was, and it started my journey of following him, which is still going 23 years later. Now, many of us here, I know, would would say we've had a similar experience encountering who Jesus is in our life, either a dramatic moment or maybe over time. But perhaps there's some of you, you might know some information about Jesus, but you haven't really found that personal connection with him. And if that is you, I want to encourage you to make that step today, just like I did in that school hall. And at the end, we'll make some space for you to do that. Looking back, it is the best decision I've ever made. Back to our passage, though, and those crowds asking, who is Jesus? Today, I want to look at how Palm Sunday answers that question in three ways. Firstly, that Jesus is the promised king. In verse 4 of the passage, did you notice that line? This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Matthew's referring back to a prophet called Zechariah, who wrote about 500 years before Jesus was even born. And you'll see Matthew using this kind of trick again and again in his gospel account. It's a little bit like that game Linky. Who here has ever played Linky? There's a few, right? There's a few, okay. It's a great game. You should check it out. You have to answer four different clues and find the one word that joins them all together, that links them all together. So whoever shouts out Linky, they win. And we're going to play Linky right now, okay? The treasure is this Easter egg right here, the prize. So the first person to answer, no expense spared on this one, the first person to shout Linky with the right answer is going to win this. So are you ready? 
You can shout it as soon as you feel like you've got something, okay? So here are the four words. You've got to shout Linky, remember, and then the right answer to win the egg. Okay, harvest, grape, wine. Yes, Linky. Vineyard is the right answer. Yes, here's an egg. Should I just throw it? Toby, can you, can you take it to the... You can't have it yourself, mate, but take it to Donna at the back. Thanks, Toby. That was just for fun. There's no theological point to that at all. <laughs> but a little bit like that, though. Matthew is kind of playing a version of Bible linky with us. He's linking the things he saw Jesus say and do with ancient predictions and prophecies scattered through the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament that we can find right here. Now, if you start reading them or just Google it, you'll see there are hundreds of these prophecies and they all work together like pieces of a jigsaw to create a picture of who Jesus is, of the promised king. So here are some clues that we find in the Old Testament. He'll be born to a virgin woman in Isaiah 7. He'll be born to a small town, Bethlehem, in Micah, verse, Micah chapter 5. He'll endure terrible suffering in his death and will be pierced and lifted up. Other clues point to what the promised king will achieve. He'll establish God's perfect kingdom on earth. He'll provide the means for forgiveness of sins. And he'll overcome the power of the grave itself, rising from the dead. Sound familiar? It's like the ultimate linky, isn't it? It's all pointing to Jesus. And I find it amazing, these prophetic clues, written hundreds of years before Jesus is even born, yet he fulfills each and every one of them. If you've never looked into it, I really encourage you this week, you know, go to Google, get that list, have a look. It is really amazing. But what does it mean for us today? So what if Jesus is the promised king, fulfilling all the prophecies? I think it means a lot. Firstly, if we've chosen to follow Jesus, it adds a depth and security to our faith. Our faith is not based on superficial data or recent phenomena. The prophecies and fulfillment linkies we see in Jesus give evidence to God's story rolling consistently through thousands of years and countless generations. There's really nothing else that compares to this. There's certainly no other religion that claims anything like it. It shows how God is sovereign above all things, working out his loving plans and purposes, no matter how broken and chaotic things look in the world around us. He really has got all of time and the whole world in his hands. And I think that's good news, especially with everything going on at the moment that we see day in, day out in the news. But secondly, it creates a personal invitation for us. The crowds on Palm Sunday, they lay down on that dusty, dirty road what was probably their only cloak. And it was a symbolic gesture. They're laying down their life in recognition that Jesus was the promised king, the one who fulfilled the prophecies. And this Palm Sunday, we're invited to respond to. At the start of Holy Week, we can ask ourselves, have we laid down our cloaks everything we have at the feet of Jesus. And I love seeing people go on this journey. People like Hester, who I met at Alpha Online during the dark days of lockdown and endless Zoom meetings. She's slowly been growing in her faith. But then just a few weeks ago, she had this encounter with Jesus where everything changed. She felt so completely loved, cherished by him. She said there was no denying his existence. Before, it was like Jesus was an enigma an abstract idea. But now, she says, the only posture I want is to lay at his feet. 
it makes more sense than anything else in the world. Hester has found that Jesus is the promised king, her promised king. And for me, I know this isn't a one-off moment in my life. It's more like a challenge to lay down my cloak every day at the feet of Jesus and submit to his will as the promised king. The second thing I think Palm Sunday shows us is that Jesus is the humble king. At this point in Jesus' life, he's already really well known. For the last three years before this, he's been traveling around Israel doing the most incredible things. He's healed countless numbers of sick people. He's raised people that were physically dead. He's freed people who were bound by evil spirits and loads of other extraordinary miracles besides. He's built a reputation for being a friend of sinners, the outcast, the lost, and the poor. He's taught incredible truths about God's kingdom, and he's confronted arrogance and hypocrisy in dry religious systems wherever he finds them. And so there's mounting speculation about who Jesus is. And now he finds himself surrounded by these adoring crowds, declaring him the king. Surely it would have been easy for him to get carried away. But Jesus appears completely composed, intentional about what happens next. He puts in a request for a colt, a young donkey, to use as his means of transport. But why? Why do that? One reason might have been to consciously fulfill that prophecy in Zechariah. Another might have been to communicate that he wasn't a, a, a king coming um, in war, but in peace. But I think the donkey also points to Jesus' character as the humble king. You see, back in ancient times, kings would, of course, often enter a city on horseback, especially if they've just won it in conquest. And generally, the bigger the horse, the better, right? Apparently, kings would often demand a horse that was at least four handspans taller than any other horse in their army of a sign of their power and their authority, but not Jesus. He doesn't go for the large war horse, four handspans above everyone else. He makes himself lower. He doesn't even go for a normal horse, but makes himself lower still. Not even a normal-sized donkey is low enough for Jesus. He selects a miniature one, a colt, a baby one. It really is the lowest of the animals he could have possibly cho chosen to go on that journey. And sometimes a picture tells a thousand words, doesn't it? Imagine what it must have felt like if you had been in that crowd, lining the road. There's rumors of Jesus coming. He's the promised king. But rather than looking up to see someone on their lofty high horse, you see someone slowly passing by at your eye level. It's like the opposite of a prideful show of power or self-preservation. It's the actions of a humble king. He's coming in loving service. And this same humility will ultimately take Jesus lower still. On Thursday of this week, he will wash his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And then on Friday, he'll give up his own life on the cross in the ultimate act of service for each one of us. Another Bible passage reflects on this humility of Jesus, and it describes him like this. Who, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. These are beautiful words, aren't they? But what does it mean for us today? 
Firstly, Jesus hasn't changed. He's exactly the same right now. He's the promised king, but he doesn't lord it over us. He's also the humble king, approachable, accessible, reachable. That means whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're carrying, you can know it's safe to come to him just as you are. He wants to meet you at eye level, so to speak. He sees you exactly where you are. But secondly, Jesus' humility becomes the model for how we're to relate to one another. As his followers, our lives are to be shaped by that example. And that passage in Philippians 2 again, it exhorts each one of us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. I remember talking to Tommy, hey Tommy, um, recently. He'd come to Trent with some questions about faith, and he quickly signed up to the newcomer's meal to find out more. And at that event, he recalls sitting next to a guy who was friendly and smartly dressed, interested to get to hear a bit about Tommy's journey. And then after dinner finished, Tommy was surprised to see the same guy get up and speak and introduce himself as the senior pastor. And of course, it was, it was John Wright who leads the church here. And Tommy said to me, you know, he was struck about how John didn't carry himself with any um, projection of, of high status. He didn't make himself like a big deal. It's just a small example but I think it's a mark of who we are as a church, which you can see everywhere. Because this attitude of humility, it flows directly into the value we have of being servant-hearted. Take today, for example. I tallied up the numbers of people serving on all the different kinds of teams that make today happen, and it amounts to well over 150. So thank you, if you're on team today, just for doing that, for serving us and making this happen, and doing it with such humility. But I'm, so, I'm sure also many of us could tell personal stories. Personal stories of how we've been served by people here who carry that same attitude throughout their lives. For me and Lizzie, during those crazy first few weeks of having our two children, people in our small group and other friends here pulled together the most amazing food rotor. It was such a blessing. So for a few weeks after each baby, we had a constant flow of amazing dinners just delivered right to our doorstep. There was even a complete roast dinner. So Joe, if you're here, thank you for that one. And I'm really considering suggesting to Lizzie we try for a third. <laughs> no, that is a joke. <laughs> but seriously though, we felt so loved by those who in humility served us in that season. And P.S., if you cooked us a meal and you're missing some Tupperware, I'm very sorry about that. I want to ask though, what might it look like for you to express humility in serving others in your life? Maybe an elderly, elderly neighbor could do with some help in the gardening. Maybe a colleague at work is struggling to get to a deadline and you could help them get over the line. Maybe you're a parent to young children and you could be the one who gets out of bed next time there's that little cry and don't pretend to be asleep. <laughs> I never would do that, honestly. <laughs> maybe you're in a house share and it's just dealing with that anonymous pile of washing up that's still there. Or maybe it's simply letting out the next car at the junction and losing those two minutes of your life. And don't worry, though, the car parking team won't be checking that on the way out today. Jesus is the humble king. He enters Jerusalem on a symbol of humility and he gives his life in service to us. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to become more and more like him. 
in how we relate to one another and the city around us. And finally, on Palm Sunday, we see that Jesus is the saving king. As Jesus comes towards Jerusalem on that donkey, we see those crowds shouting in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And that word, Hosanna, it means save us. Or even more urgently, like save us right now. But save us from what? A big irony running through Palm Sunday is the people of Israel back then and there, they had a pretty clear idea of what that salvation would look like. It would look like freedom and deliverance from the Roman enemies who were occupying their land. It would look like an era of complete peace and prosperity. It definitely would not look like um, Jerusalem filled with Roman centurions. And it definitely would not, like, would not look like their taxes going to line the pockets of the Emperor Caesar. But the irony is that as good as those things sounded, Jesus had come to do something so much bigger, so much better. A salvation that was beyond what anyone could imagine. Over the last seven years, I've been helping on the baptism team here, and I love it. I've seen about 400 people take the plunge in that time, and there were many hundreds before that. One of the reasons I love it is I get to hear the different candidates share their stories of how the bigger salvation Jesus has, impact, has impacted their lives. People like Luke, who in 2019 said, I know my sins have been forgiven, washed away. That's why I'm being baptized in Jesus' name. Or Tim in 2020, who said, as I drew closer to Jesus, he began to break chains in my life, some of which I didn't even know needed breaking. Or last year, Chloe said, I thank Jesus every day for entering my life. He truly saved me. And for that, I'll be eternally grateful. Hearing those kind of stories, it reminds me of the bigger and the better salvation that Jesus accomplishes for us, out of pure love, a salvation that means complete freedom and total forgiveness. Freedom to come into God's presence, totally accepted, forgiven, blameless before him, because Jesus opened the way. Freedom from our guilt, even the thing you feel worst about, because Jesus stretched out on his hands on the cross, out of pure love, to pay the price for our sins. And freedom from the fear of death itself because Jesus overcame the grave on our behalf and holds out the gift of eternal life to all of us who would just receive him and trust him in our hearts. What can we say about these things? Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You've broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. I didn't just make that up, that's from the song we sing. Who is this? The crowds asked. And as we celebrate this Palm Sunday today, wherever you are in your journey, let me invite you to open your heart to the Jesus we encounter there. The promised King who deserves our worship, the humble King who bears our burdens, and the saving King who secured our freedom. Yes.